verses 7 to 11. So look on as I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 to 11. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. <laughs> that audible threw me off. song about providence Ali had pointed that out and how well it fit couldn't help but think about how well it fit for the message this morning and the ministry of the apostle paul directed by providence everywhere he went um, particularly to philippi and all the things that happened to him in a short space of time uh, if you go to the book of acts and you read Chapter 15, which is the Council of Jerusalem, it's followed immediately by the Macedonian call, and then it's followed by uh, Paul going to uh, Philippi over in Greece, um, and the experiences he had. And, um, you know, you have the situation where this demonic, uh, demon-possessed lady is falling around screaming and yelling and and apparently this went on for days and finally um, the Holy Spirit moves him to cast out the demon which results in the loss of revenue for the local merchants and lands him in jail. Before he goes to jail he, he takes this incredible beating, you know. Uh, Roman beatings were infamous for being harsh and then he's in jail and then he's released. So it's just, it's, and, and so in recalling all these fond things uh, there's a lot of painful things he's recalling as well and so it's really important as we go through life we are faced constantly with uh, trials and difficulties and uh, i do it is uh, very important for us uh, if we don't have the doctrine of providence in our minds and hearts we do tend to um, we, you can we can easily i can easily descend in to despair, um, but for those of us who understand um, God's providential care, it, it is transformational. I, I've told the story many times, I'll tell it again, because it always makes me laugh. Um, when 
I didn't. When I, my only mobilization when I was in the National Guard was to Port Hood, Texas, for three months, and uh, that was bad enough. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, it was a Desert Storm, a very short war. Some of you don't weren't even alive at that time, but it was just over like this, and um, the um, the uh, Iraqis uh, soldiers were surrendering to to. Um, our little squads, you know, because they were mortified, and so it was over much more quickly than, but if you remember, it was just fear of what would happen. And after, and so there's this incredible victory, and all these victory parades, and we had a chaplain out briefing, and uh, was a Roman Catholic chaplain in charge of all the army chaplains, giving us the out briefing, and he said, of all the chaplains, the uh, Presbyterians did the best. He, he said, and he told the story, it's like a guy who uh, fell down the stairs and after he went down, he said, I'm glad that's over with. So, um, and, so and if we understand providence, that that's not you know fatalism, that's providence. When things happen that are terrible, uh, we know it's part of God's plan. And the ultimate example for that is our Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been a more evil, horrible injustice in the world than his uh, trial on false charges, his death from a human standpoint. And yet it's that very uh, act that results in the fulfillment of God's plan to save a people for himself. And if you want to check that out, you can go to Acts chapter 2. I think it's, I think it's 30, verse 32, 33. As I get older, my verses don't always match, so you got to check me <laughs> on things. Well, Paul continues in this introduction to Philippians on the subject of confidence. That should make us confidence. Pro the, the subject of God's providential love, his sovereign grace, should make us confident people. Um, confidence is really at the heart of success uh, in any field. Uh, you know, whatever your field is, whether it's, um, you know, young people's sports, I think, I think there's some some Olympics or something going on, but uh, whether it's basketball or, or any endeavor, athletic endeavor, confidence is essential. And, and you can't really perform at the level that you need to without that confidence. And um, I think they do the figure skating and, and it just, it's just these graceful young ladies and then they'll have this horrible fall and you think, oh no, you know, their, their life is over. Well, what separates the ones who do well from, uh, is confidence. Often it's just the belief and understanding uh, that they know they can, they've trained and they can do it. But, but actually training and actually doing it is, is sometimes different. And that's true in every sphere, whether it's business or whether it's uh, uh, medicine or, or you know, if you're a student taking a test or you, you, name, you name the endeavor, whether it's uh, performing music, um, uh, some people can play magnificently uh, by themselves and some can sing magnificently in the shower, but uh, you know, performance anxiety is a very real 
thing. Well, having said that, Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 7 about what he is confident in. He's confident of God's love and care for the church in Philippi. That the one who began that good work, as we read this morning in verse 6, will complete it. And he's so confident, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It's not, and, it, and it's, it's, it's subjective in, in one sense, but it's certain in the sense that it's the word of God. He is right to feel confident about the faith of the Philippians. And sometimes our feelings, our emotions um, are wrong. Now, I love what Jay said, because that's so true about the Psalms. Um, they inform our they they inform our emotions. They um, they tell us how we uh, what proper emotions are. Psalm five is a I picked it because it had a theme of joy, but it also is a theme of God. These enemies are running me over and running me down. Uh, you will judge them because you are God and you are good. That that's what should give us confidence. What is the basis of, of this confidence? He says, it's my heart, because I hold you in my heart. Again, it's not, a, not, a, not a, an objective thing from a, from a human standpoint. But for the Apostle Paul, it was very, uh, very real. It's in his heart, it's certain. The heart is such an important uh, subject from the scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the primary word for heart means the same thing. It means the center of a person's being and personality. Apart from the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things, it says in uh, Jeremiah 17. The Lord Jesus, in describing the heart in the Gospel of Mark, says it's from the heart that flows all kinds of wickedness. What has to take place is a transformed heart. And the Apostle Paul, in his transformed heart, knows that the Christians in Philippi are partakers of grace. That you all, I know, in, I know in my heart that you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Um, grace. It's a word that we take, uh, take for granted, but we should never take it for granted. It's grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. 
He gives it freely to his people. Um, it's, it's the heart of the gospel. Grace is what transforms us from death and to life. And Paul says that the fellowship of, of, the, of the Philippians with him is based on God's grace. What he said in, in verse 5 about the partnership of the gospel, he continues that same thought here. This is the reason that we have this bond, and this is why uh, we are seeing God at work in the lives of people. And it's interesting the words he, use, he uses here, uh, both in his imprisonment, again, this terrible event of being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and everything uh, that goes with that, the limitations, he can't move about, he can't preach publicly, but the Holy Spirit uh, uh, uses that time for him to write down the very word of God. And think about how that imprisonment has led to countless messages from this text about that hope and encouragement. And what else does it uh, result in? The defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And that word defense is um, apologia, which is a word that, uh, theological term that we employ often called apologetics. The defense of the faith. Um, in our little insider lingo, in our little reformed uh, some of you are learning about the Reformed faith, and it's new to you. Some, some, for some of you, this is old and boring <laughs> stuff. I realize it, but um, but there are two basic kinds of apologetics that go into uh, defending the faith. Paul says that the faith is something to be defended. One um, is the evidentialist uh, apologetic. Um, I think Thomas Aquinas was the most famous. Is that right, Jay? Uh, I'd say Josh McDowell. Evidence. Josh McDowell. <laughs> Evidence but wasn't Aquinas an evidentialist? Look at the stars, look at the sun, look at things. You know there's a God. No? Correct me. I, don't I would care. say no. You say no? You yeah. say he was a presuppositionalist? Mm -hmm. A little insider baseball here. We'll talk about it later. Josh McDowell. Evidence that demands a burden. A, a verdict, rather. Man's a, man's a verdict. You can, you can, you can uh, know these things are true about God by looking at nature, by looking at science, by looking at, at all the things around. And, then, and I, to me, I'm a, I'm a hybrid between the two because I certainly believe there are uh, evidential uh, things to point to. But more than all, I think they're subsumed under presuppositional apologetics. And if you ever want to delve deeply into the subject, you get a little book, not a little book, but it's not that long, but it's a difficult book by Cornelius Van Til called The Defense of the Faith. And to summarize his thought, it's what I believe the Apostle Paul does. He simply assumes that the Word of God is true, and he proclaims it in every area of the life. And not only does Paul proclaim the Scriptures, he is 
as he writes, inscripturating the very words of God to us. I know that um, Charles Spurgeon was no doubt a presuppositionalist because people would often ask him to defend the Bible. And he would say, I would rather defend a lion than defend the Bible. Because the Bible is true no matter what the world says about it. It is the Word of God. Um, the greatest apologetic, and this is what this is what Paul is pointing to. The greatest defense of the faith in Christ is a changed life. We, we uh, elders at Covenant have such a privilege to hear testimonies of how God's grace transforms lives. It is a constant joy, and I, I feel like we're living in the the time of Acts a little bit at Covenant Church. It seems like daily the Lord is adding to our church those who are confessing their faith and wanting to be a part of our fellowship. What a, what a joy. But the common thread in all of the testimonies is how the grace of God changes sinners from death into life. The simple statement that I was once a rebellious sinner bound for hell and destruction until God awakened me. Whether it's like we heard this morning of a young child coming to that understanding or whether it's someone who comes to it in later years, we still yearn to hear that testimony of God's affirming grace. This is something the Apostle Paul carried with him throughout his ministry. He couldn't get over of how he, how he persecuted the church, how he hated God's people, how he imprisoned them and even sought to put them to death, holding the clothes of those who stoned Stephen. That frightening sin that haunted him his whole life, but he could say with great affirmation what he says here, that God who began that work is completing it, that they are partaker, the Philippians who, who the, the, the very jailer who put him in prison and no doubt was bent on mistreating him, who God sent a miraculous sign uh, that brought him to repentance and faith. This is how God Works. He works through affliction. He works through um, um, all kinds of circumstances to bring his people to an end of themselves to where they cry out to God for mercy. Um, and he talks about the, the um, and how, how there's such an affection in his heart. Uh, this is a, 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 a funny word, affection, that it comes from the word entrails or bowels. <laughs> always, I always laugh, but, but we say that. No, I feel this in my gut. I know it's true. It's such a visceral, true thing. I feel it emotionally. 
I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That is his desire to be united in partnership with the Philippians in ministry. Um, the, the, the greatest apology that you have, and every every Christian has, is, is not only to tell your testimony to elders in the Presbyterian Church when you want to join it, but that's your best witness that you could ever possibly have. The best thing you can do is um, share your testimony about how God saved you. Because the same way he saved you is the same way he'll save any sinner by grace through faith. I can't remember. The, um, there's a famous British um, chaplain. He was the founder of the British. I can't recall his name. But he was um, stationed in Africa, Sierra Leone. And he became the um, chaplain of the British Army. And he's famous for taking uh, before World War One, the chaplains were like, there were like 150 chaplains in the whole British Army and he, he took that number and expanded it to 2,500 and he was, an, he was an Episcopal priest who was in the chaplaincy but he was uh, an Episcopal of the, of the form of J.C. Ryle, you know, a, a Bible-believing, gospel-centered man of God. And he is famous for, for, for screening ministers who wanted to go into the chaplaincy because the need was so dire of all the men dying on the battlefield. If you know the history of World War I, what a bloody, horrible conflict it was. Uh, if you've ever been up to the World War Museum in, uh, in uh, Kansas City, it's just, the, the slaughter was just hard to imagine. But, uh, this bishop who was in charge of the chaplaincy <clears throat> screened the chaplains like this. He would say, soldiers dying on the battlefield, tell him how to get into heaven in three minutes. And if he couldn't do it, he didn't make the chaplaincy. And that's the way our testimony should be. Always ready to speak the truth that the only way to heaven is through the death of Jesus for sinners. And to say it clearly and plainly about yourself. Because if you can't say it about yourself, you can't effectively tell anybody about Jesus. Then he prays. He prays in verse 9, My prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Again, it's important to note the order. Love. Jay was as affected by his own sermon in Song of Solomon as I was. <laughs> And I've adopted it myself. <laughs> His banner over me is love. Amen. He loves me. He loves me. If you're a child of God, God loves you. With an everlasting love that can never be taken away. And that should be our first uh, testimony before the watching world. We love people. We love them so much that we don't want to see them perish eternally. We want to tell them the truth. 
We pray for it earnestly. But note the order. There's love and then there's knowledge. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it? In reverse, Paul says, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. It's the first work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, according to Paul in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. But love must be informed by knowledge. Love and knowledge are not enemies. They are wed together in this text. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The, the word knowledge here is epigenosis, which means true knowledge. I never forget that. I always check it when I see the word in the New Testament because that was Dick Tuning's favorite term. He based his whole ministry uh, on true knowledge versus the false knowledge of this world. <clears throat> Gnosticism was a, was a, uh, a thing in the second century. Uh, that some think that Paul was already dealing with early forms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was something that said if you just had the right facts in your head, that's all you needed. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Peter Jones, some of you have heard of him, he's written so incredibly well on the subject. He thinks it's the heresy that's destroying the evangelical church. It's just merely head knowledge is what saves a person. It's true knowledge that results in salvation. It is true knowledge that results uh, in discernment. It's, it's, it's a failure to understand scripture and a failure to under, uh, apply scripture, a failure to understand how truth flows from God's word into life is always destroying God's people. The prophet Hosea wrote about in chapter 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Does it mean we have some Gnostic un magic understanding of the gospel that gives us a, a, a pass into heaven? We have true knowledge. If we have faith in Christ, we are truly united to Christ, and that is our identity. This um, discussion we're having within our family of uh, churches is just amazes me. Because it is a rejection of knowledge and discernment. And it's not just true in parts of our church. It's true in so much of the evangelical world. Finally, we come to the purpose of God's grace in verses 10 and 11. The purpose of God's grace is for the Philippian church and for us 
to approve what is excellent and to be pure and blameless. And here he comes again to the day of Christ, the day of judgment, the day that Jesus comes and we stand before him in a resurrected body to give an account and long to hear his affirmation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Um, bearing fruit is just a constant um, theme throughout the New Testament. Um, let me just let me just read some passages. John fifteen. Verses 4 and 6. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Apart from the Lord Jesus, you can do nothing. Um, Psalm, Psalm 1, the very first Psalm. Verse 3. Who, what is the righteous like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers in isaiah 5 god compares his people israel to a fruitful vine to a vineyard to a, a tree that bears fruit our lord jesus talked about about it when he went to jerusalem and he saw the fig tree and he saw leaves on the tree and he didn't see any fruit. And we, we, he says, well, there's leaves. There must be fruit or there will be judgment. We just finished Hebrews. We went through chapter 12 where, where the, the writer talks about the, the, the goal of faith being the peaceable fruit mm. of righteousness. I have, uh, we, this church has some master gardeners, if you've not, if you don't know them, <laughs> Pamela Anderson for one, uh, um, Gareth Egg, several, se several people are just amazing in the garden. I piddle in the garden, but I'm a southerner, so I grow tomatoes, <laughs> try to, my wife complains about how many tomato plants I get, and so, what do you get excited about when you plant stuff in your garden? Mm. The fruit. It's, it's a very simple, simple application. And the scripture uses it, Old and New Testament, mm. over and over again. What do you look when you're for when you're a gardener? You look for fruit. And when you can't grow a certain plant or certain something's not right, mm. it frustrates a gardener. God is the master gardener. 
and he's looking for fruit. Are you bearing fruit in your life? That's the question we should all ask. What is the fruit in my life? What does it look like? Will God accept it? He's planted you, and he's watered you, and he's nurtured you. He will, with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, how it always speaks to us, and how it's always applicable to every area of our lives. Fill our minds and hearts with new understanding of what it means uh, that you love us, and that you expect us to bear fruit for Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.